right, good morning, he is risen. Oh, okay now, we just had this room packed full of kids and families and they put you guys to shame, so he is risen. I don't know if they explained it, but that's why we have confetti and I'm told some of your seats might be a little damp from bubbles and that's on me because I was the bubble guy. I was just like, you know, bubble gun. It was awesome. So uh, welcome. My name's John. I'm one of the pastors here. When's the last time you were disappointed? When's the last time you were disappointed? Probably today. As humans, we're naturally just prone to disappointment. The, the definition of disappointment is uh, sadness or displeasure caused by the non-fulfillment of one's hopes or expectations. The etymology of the word literally means to not meet at an appointed place. So we have this appointed place of our expectations, and when reality comes, it doesn't meet there, and thus we're disappointed. I just simplify the definition. It's the gap between our expectations and reality. When's the last time you were disappointed? I, uh, one of my favorite Easter candies, I think everybody knows is Peeps here, but also Jelly Bellies. Anybody else Jelly Bellies? Like, I love Jelly Bellies. So many incredible flavors. I think they're kind of all, I just throw them all in my mouth and just chew. It's just like, this is amazing. Well, Jelly Belly came out with this game called Bean Boozled. Has anybody heard of this? It's kind of a sick game, but my, my daughter Jubilee and her friends love to play it, and you can actually buy the game, or you can just kind of make it up as you go, but if you buy the game, you, you spin the dial, and then you get these two jelly bellies that look the same and are the same color, but they're different taste, and so you don't know what you're going to get in your mouth. You think it could be tutti frutti or bubble gum or cotton candy, which you hope, or they've created this whole line of alternate flavors. Here's some of them. Dead fish. Dirty dishwater, old bandage, rotten egg, canned dog food, I'm not kidding you, moldy cheese, stinky socks, and lawn clippings. So the game is, and my, my girls love it. They're like, Dad, put this in your mouth. I'm like, I don't even know. And so you, you, you see it, and your brain tells you, jelly belly. And then you get stinky socks. That is what disappointment is right there. I don't know how better to explain it to you than that right there. Uh, I, I've long had this idea of writing my own self-help book, and it's going to be one page. And on that one page, there'll be one line. And for it to work, you've got to read it every single morning. And the one line is this. Are you ready for it? Today is going to be a horrible day. <laughs> now, here's how it works. Don't judge. Here's how it works. If you go into the day with that mindset, you'll never be disappointed. And if it is a horrible day, probably won't be. If it is, you won't be disappointed. You expected it. So there I am. That's my self book. It's $9.99 in the, in the lobby. I take Venmo after the service. I'm just kidding. When's the last time you were disappointed? When's the last? It could be a job. It could be a relationship. Could be you're, you're like the age that I'm at, or you know, as you get older and you're like, is this life? Is this, is this what it is? Maybe COVID has stolen something from you. And you're really looking forward to that. High school students over the last couple of years, yes, right? Really looking forward to something and it's just gone. You're like, what? Maybe we're in a place of worship. Maybe your disappointment is with God. There's a little bit of that going on, I think. When's the last time you were? disappointed. Today we're going to look at a story where a group of characters was disappointed, but then that disappointment turned into delight. If you journey with us regularly here, and maybe you're a guest, we're so glad you're here. Uh, we've been going through 
a series on the Gospel of Luke. There are four Gospels or eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. Luke is one of them. And so one of the threads we've been following through Luke is this idea of a great reversal. Luke focuses on that, that Jesus the man, everywhere he went and everything he did was reversing things, turning everything and everyone inside out. We're going to look at one of the very last scenes in the Gospel of Luke today, the greatest great reversal of all. Next week, just to put in a brief plug, we're launching a new series called 10 Questions. And so as a pastor, I journey with lots of people, lots of coffees and lunches and lots of people on different points in their journey of faith. Some coming to faith, some deconstructing their faith, some not sure if they want to do faith. That's some of you here this morning. So we tried to come up with the 10 hardest questions. What are barriers to faith? It could be about the Bible. It could be about other Christians. It could be about politics. We're going to tackle them all. It could be the worst idea in the world, but I'm excited about it. And uh, we've got a big read, a book called Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin out of Oxford that we're going to hopefully have all of us read. We're going to have panel discussions. We're just going to go there. And so I hope you'll come back next week. Uh, And if you're a follower of Jesus, this will boister your faith, hopefully. You'll be able to give a, a reason for the hope that is within you. So next week's question is, isn't the world better off without Christianity? And we're going to take a hard look at that and be honest. So I hope you'll join us. Uh, Before Jerry comes and reads our scripture passage, uh, let me pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you for your people. Thank you for your church. And we gather here at this local expression of the church, but we also gather with so many brothers and sisters throughout our city. We pray blessings and shalom upon their gatherings. And so many brothers and sisters in different time zones across the world, your church is so diverse and growing rapidly every day because of the hope that is within us, the hope of the risen Lord. And we're going to talk about that today. I pray, Father, for folks in this room that maybe they're uncomfortable being here. Somebody drugged them here. I hope that was not the case. But they're feeling some apprehension, and I just pray that you would calm them and help them to feel loved by you and loved by your people. Open our minds and our hearts to encounter your word. May it enter us and make it, may it reshape and reform who we are. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. So we're, Jerry's going to come read the scripture. We have this thing here that when we read God's word, that's way different than my word or the other teacher's word. Uh, Jerry will end and say, this is the word of the Lord. And then you say, do better. You say, we're reading an incredible story this morning from Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, he replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more... It is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, 
but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so if you have your Bibles, and it's okay if you don't, but if you have them, have them on your phone, go ahead and get them out. And uh, we're looking at Luke 24. It's near the, the end of Luke's gospel, one of the very last scenes. Our passage is verse 13 through 35, if you want to look at it later. So it, it opens with the words, that same day. So we all do this when we read novels and books. What that tells us is we should look backwards to verses 1 through 12. And in verses 1 through 12, Luke recounts the empty tomb. So Luke paints this picture that this group of women show up at the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a rich guy that gave Jesus his tomb. And those same women had taken Jesus' body, according to Jewish burial customs, to this tomb. It was a family tomb. And we have a picture. My wife and I were just in Israel, as many of you know, and so you'll see some pictures today from that trip. This is a first century burial cave that a family would have owned, probably a wealthy family, for multiple people. So you would have taken a dead body, Jesus' body, they would have taken it off the cross, uh, carried it in, and there would be a, a place that you lay the body. And then you wrap it and you put spices on it. Well, they, they ran out of time. And Sabbath came, so for the Jewish people that can't work on a Sabbath, so they left it there, closed up the tomb so no, no tomb raiders could get in. And they're coming back now after the Sabbath to finish the job. They've got spices, they're grieving. They expect to find Jesus' body right there, and they're gonna finish up. And then when you finish, you put it in kind of a tube, a, a tunnel, and then they can come back in a year and you collect the bone, you'll see the bone boxes there. And that's kind of how the Jewish people to this day do it. So picture the scene, this group of women, including Mary Magdalene, comes, and lo and behold, they find the, the tomb door open. That's not what they expected. It's very early. And so they walk in, and then it gets more and more crazy. Instead of finding Jesus' body, they find two angels, and the two angels essentially say, hey, he's not here. He is risen, and you should know this, because he told you again and again and again. Kind of like, what's your deal? You shouldn't be all shock and awe. <laughs> you should have known this. So the women, they run back to the group of disciples, the 12, now the 11, because Judas has, has abandoned the group, plus a larger group. We know that Jesus' followers weren't just the 12. There's maybe 25 to 30. 
women, lots of women that would just travel with Jesus. So they're all in this room. They don't know what to do. They're bewildered. They're disappointed. Their hopes are crushed. Some of them are scared to be attached to Jesus. And the women show up and they say, the tomb's empty and the angels told us he's risen. And it says that they discounted the women. Have you been there, women? Have you been discounted before by men? You know, let's just go there, right? So then Peter does his own version of mansplaining where he has to go check for himself. And sure enough, he finds out that the women were right and women usually are right. Amen, ladies? Dudes, that was a chance to say amen loud. (laughs) Missed opportunity. So that's kind of when it says that same day, that's what happened. So these two on the road to Emmaus are part of that group that would have been in that room. That's an important part. They were there. They traveled with Jesus. They knew Jesus well. They're part of his intimate group. We're told that they are traveling to Emmaus. We don't know exactly where that is. Our last day in Israel, we had a a concluding dinner. We called it our last supper um, in the place they think was Emmaus. You'll see a picture of my friend Trent, and I'm like, hey, we're the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And and, uh, it's somewhere in that vicinity, seven miles or so of a walk. So they probably lived there, worked there. They were in Jerusalem for the Passover. And they're walking, and one of their names is Cleopas. And when gospel writers give us the name, it's likely so that we can follow up on eyewitnesses, not us, but the original readers. These gospels were written maybe 50s, 60s, even in the early 70s. Cleopas would have been still alive. That's why he's mentioned. So Luke's like, if you don't believe me, just go ask Cleopas. He's down at the fish market. You know, go, go talk to him about it. He'll tell you. The other disciple's not named. I'm pretty certain it's Cleopas' wife, and that's what we're going with. So Cleopas and his wife, they're walking, and Luke tells us that they're having an animated discussion. In the Greek language, it's very emotive terms. So if you're talking with somebody about something you're excited about or agitated about, right, that's what's happening. So picture it. They're walking, they're talking, they're engaging, and they're probably processing everything they've been through in the last week, coming with Jesus into the temple, and he flips tables. That was weird and exciting. Never seen Jesus that mad. Come back the next day, and Jesus enters in on this weird donkey, and there's palm raisings and Hosanna, and they're kind of hopeful. They didn't really know what was going on. And then they go to the room of the Last Supper, and they were there, and Jesus washed their feet. That was weird. Jesus washing our feet. What was going on there? I have no clue. And then they go to the all-night prayer session, In the Garden of Gethsemane, they were like, I couldn't stay awake, could you? Yeah, it was tough. And then Judas shows up with the Romans and shows his true color, and then Peter cuts off the ear, and then Jesus heals the ear, and then literally all hell breaks loose. There's the trial and the whipping and another trial, and then the horrifying scene of Jesus being pummeled to death and hung on a cross. Crazy stuff like earthquakes and temple veils splitting, and they're processing all of this. And they're disappointed. They're sad. They're bewildered. And then reports start to come out and and pop up everywhere that the tomb's empty, the tomb's empty, the tomb's empty. And Jesus begins to appear to people, but he's kind of disappearing. It is just weird. And they're animated and they're excited and their hearts are broken. And then they hear this, hey, nice day for a walk. And Luke's a great storyteller. So we know the readers that it's Jesus. They don't know. And they're like, what are you talking about? They're like, what do you mean, what are we talking about? Do you live in a hole? Which tells us that everyone was talking about this. And then they go ahead and they begin to tell Jesus about himself. That's funny. <laughs> Jesus probably was laughing, got a little twinkle in his eye. 
And they, they give us the mental framework of how most of the disciples must have been feeling. We, Jesus, you don't know about him. He was a great prophet in word and deed. And we thought he was going to be like the second Moses and set us free from Rome and a second Exodus. And, and then he was crucified. And there's no such thing as a crucified king, so we don't know what to do with that. But now we're hearing these weird reports that he's alive, and we can't buy that. We'd have to see him in person. Again, the irony. Jesus said, kind of hold himself back, I bet. And then Jesus says, how foolish are you? How slow to believe. And again, we always read our own emotions into Jesus. I think Jesus always had a twinkle in his eye. I think he was always laughing and smiling. And I think he is just like, what are you talking about? Don't you know your Bible? And again, they didn't have the Bible like us, but they had the Hebrew scriptures. So Jesus, I don't know if he had the parchments with him. I don't know. I don't, he probably had it all memorized, right? He, he starts telling them. He takes them all the way back and begins to tell them the story of how this, of course, is how it had to be. Can't you see? Don't you know the story? And their hearts burn within them, it said. Their hearts begin to come alive. I mean, that had to be the Bible study of all Bible studies. And they're talking and walking, and they're starting to wake up to reality. But we're told they don't know who Jesus is still. The Greek phrase says their eyes were overpowered. They just don't see him. And then they get to Emmaus, and it's night. It's not safe to travel at night, but Jesus acts like he's going to go on. They're like, no, 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 no. We want the Bible study to continue. This is amazing. Join us at our home. And I think these two disciples were at the Last Supper. I'm pretty confident. So they don't recognize who it is until Jesus sits down. He's not the guest. He's immediately the host. And when he breaks the bread and spills the wine, boom, their eyes were open. And then guess what happens next? Bam, he disappears. That's pretty cool. I mean, they say those of us who follow Jesus are going to get resurrected bodies. I'm ready for mine right now. Amen. Anybody else? And I don't know what that'll look like. I really don't. Scripture doesn't say much about it. But if, it's, if we have that ability to disappear and reappear at will, I'm in. That's pretty cool. <laughs> so many awkward conversations with church people. I'd just be like, boop, boy, where'd he go? Where'd... Just kidding. None of you guys, I promise. <laughs> so... They, they're like, what was that? They're bewildered, but they're also convinced that Jesus rose and it was him. They saw him. So then they run all seven miles back at night. They're so excited. They have to share the news. And they're like, the women were right. And the women were like, we know, we know, we know. So what are some insights that we have as we step into this ancient story and, and we kind of try to bring it into our lives so many years later? One of the insights that, that struck me is that Jesus is inviting them, and we have been invited into a greater story. We're story people. Do you know that? I mean, when we hear stories, science says our brains begin to fire differently. In fact, all sections of our brains light up when we hear a story. It's interconnected. We're made for story. It's why we stay up in the middle of the night to finish the good book or watch a three-hour Marvel movie or spend a lot of money to go see Hamilton on Broadway, right? We love story. When we hear story, when we enter story, we come alive. It's like we came home again. When I'm teaching you, or when others are teaching you, and I get into some nerdy thing like, well, in the Greek language, like five of you care about that, right? So you're, some of you are like, that's it. Most of you are like, you know? But when I say, I start to tell a story, you all sit up. You lean in. You begin to come alive. We're made for story. Jesus is inviting us and inviting Cleopas and his wife into a greater story. 
The Bible is the story of all stories. I'm just convinced it's a story that shapes every story. It's a meta-narrative is what scholars call it. It has this hopeful beginning and then all great stories have this horrifying tragedy that happens. You're thinking like, is there any hope? There's no hope. And then there's a hero and then there's a rescue and then all things are made right and all the characters live happily ever after. Thank you, Disney, for that. That's the story. That's almost every great story is something like that. It's shaped by the story of scripture. What is the Bible? If you're new to this, it's just a story. But it's a story that's not static doesn't sit on the pages. We're invited into it to join it. What did Jesus say that day? We, we, we don't know exactly. I think we can make a really good guess. My professor, Scott McKnight,'s written a lot about this. He's helped me get my mind around what story might Jesus have been telling them. I think it would go something like this. I think he would have gone back to Genesis and said, in the beginning, God created everything that is, and it was tov. That's the Hebrew word. It was good. It was right. Mwah. And then God took the dust of the land and blew his life into it, and it was very tov, it was very good, and that's you, and that's me. And why God created us is to make us, here's the Hebrew term, icons, icons. We were created, see, God in, 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 the, in, the, in the garden, that's his temple. That's how the earliest people would have seen it, God reigning in his temple. So he creates humanity as icons to represent him, to rule redemptively on his behalf. How cool is that? How did that go? Did that go well in the garden? No, no. Because the, the, the icons created in God's image to rule redemptively in God's, they went their own way. They wanted to be God. And that created havoc in the garden and it crushed shalom. And we're feeling the ripple effects of that even to this day. But God did not give up. God, he killed an animal and he clothed them. And right at that moment in Genesis 3, he promised to send an ultimate icon, one who will rule righteously on his behalf, one who will one day make all things that have ever been wrong right again. So we begin to track with that. We begin to look for that in the Hebrew scriptures. God calls Abraham and Isaac, and he builds this family that builds a nation from which this righteous icon's gonna come. And God's people, the Israelites, were supposed to rule redemptively on his behalf. How did that go? Not good. King after king after king going their own way, wanting to be God. By the time we get to the New Testament, there's been 400 years of dreadful silence. Can you imagine? Will God ever be faithful we see Anna and Simeon and even Mary, the mother of Jesus, that are hopeful and still waiting. And then the gospel writers tell us it's game time. It's game time. And John the Baptist announces the, the coming of the one that is long in prize, the Messiah. That word just means king. That's our Jesus Christ. That's that word. It's king. The righteous icon is finally here. And he's going to make all things right. But then the big shocker, and this is what Jesus was explaining to them, that the inauguration of the king was his death and his resurrection. That was the only way to make all things right again. And so on the cross and the resurrection, that's where Jesus is inaugurated as the long-awaited righteous king. But the story doesn't end there. And this is, I think, what he was telling Cleopas and his wife. It was just beginning. It's still just beginning. And he invited them into the story because we're told this king is bringing now his kingdom of heaven to earth. And one day that king will physically return and make all things right. But until then, God's people, us, led by the spirit of God, help partner with God to make all things right. We become new creations in Jesus. We become the very thing we were supposed to be in the garden, icons to rule redemptively and graciously and kindly and lovingly. 
on God's path. So when they see his church, they're like, God is good. God is good. That's, you feel your heart coming alive a little bit? That's what it is. This is not a static story. This isn't like, let me just tell you the story that happened. This is a story that is happening right here in New Hope. That's why I get so excited about church. We get to be part of this. When we drive through our city and see the brokenness, no judgment, no looking down on them, we're invited into helping make that right for the glory of God and the sake of the world. Amen? Amen. That's why their hearts were burning. That's the Greek term. It's literally heartburn, but a good kind of heartburn, not bad kind of heartburn, right? So that's one idea, that insight they had. A second insight I had was kind of troubling to me at first. It was the insight that these men and women that live with Jesus and walk with Jesus and camped out with Jesus, sometimes for three years, they had no clue who he was. That should scare us, actually. Like they, they didn't know. Jesus asked them continually, who do you say that I am? Let me turn that question on you. Who do you say Jesus is? How would you answer that? He was always asking them that question. And I think that, that they had a propensity of making Jesus in their own image. And I think we do as well. I, as a youth pastor for many years, I collected Jesus figurines I'd have in my office, which seems kind of weird. It is weird, but I, I, I love Jesus figurines. So through the years, people have given me ones, and I don't know what order or how they'll come up on the PowerPoint there, but um, let me share a couple. Can I share a couple with you? All right. You're not in control. I'm going to do it anyway. All right. Uh, this is Dashboard Jesus Enlightenment on a String. So he's kind of like, yeah, he's pretty cool. All right, so there we go. Nobody steal these later. All right, uh, we've got, what else do we have in here? We have, um, ooh, I like this one. We have the Jesus Nodder. This is the one I pray to, because he's always like, yes, yes, I will <laughs> give you that, yes. All right, so we got that. Um, this is, a, I think this is one from the movie Dogma. It's Buddy Christ. He's kind of smiling, I'm like, yeah, you're cool. Everything's cool. Everything you do is good. That kind of, all right, so. And then we have, uh, this is a collector's edition. We have the Jesus action figure. It says, with posable arms and gliding action. Who knew that Jesus glided? Everywhere. That's just what he did. He glided. All right. And then we have, uh, this is a really, really weird one. All right, you guys, I don't know if you're mentally prepared for this. This is Jesus on a Harley. And he kind of comes off. And, and then he's got a crown of thorns. So... <laughs> I used to, my, my girls when they were young used to play with this. I'm like, do not lose the crown of thorns. It falls off. All right. So there's that. Really disturbing stuff. And then this, that was disturbing. This is even more. This is going to haunt you tonight in your sleep. All right. This is a hope on a rope, Jesus bath soap. <laughs> just, let me just put these back in the box here. I told you to get ready. So here's what we do. Here's why I like those. One, it engenders conversation. But two, I think it shows us how maybe just in a funny, humorous way, we, but also in a deeply disturbing way, we make Jesus in our own image. And I think that's what we see the disciples doing. Let's, let's think about two of the disciples. One was Judas, and we know Judas. If you know anything about Judas, you know that he's the one that betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And we always judge Judas, and we say he was greedy. Sure, he was probably greedy. I don't think that's what drove him. His name was Judas Iscariot, and that literally means in the Greek, dagger man. He was a revolutionary. He was a Jewish rev revolutionary hitman. That was one of Jesus' disciples. Do you think he cared about the Jews overthrowing the Romans? You think he might have cared just a little bit? Yeah. So I think in Jesus, he saw the one who would do that, that would bring the extra muscle. 
I think Judas was ahead of all the other disciples in seeing that is not the way this is going to go. And I think he was deeply disappointed. And I think he was angry. Then we have Peter. And if you know anything about Peter, he's the head guy, the passionate guy. He would, be, he would become the one that would lead the church. But what we know about Peter around this time is that he, he denied knowing Jesus three times. As you probably are familiar with that in some way, shape, or form if you know anything about the story. It's been long held that Peter was scared. I have a friend that recently entered this into my mind I can't stop thinking about. It. I think he's right. I don't think Peter was scared. I think he was disappointed and angry. Now, we have Peter in the garden right before he denies knowing Jesus. Peter cuts off the ear of a Roman soldier. Does that sound like a scared guy? No. Doesn't sound like a scared guy. I think like Judas, Peter, I mean, he's, he's a guy who brings a sword to a prayer all-nighter, right? <laughs> he was ready to rumble. He thought, like most of the disciples, like Cleopas and his wife, that Jesus was coming, like a second Moses, to defeat and vanquish the Egyptians or the Romans, and they would rule with Jesus. And when it, he saw it was going another way, and that Jesus healed the ear that he had cut off, and that Jesus was willingly going to the most degrading place on the planet, the cross, he's like, I'm out. I'm out. I think he was disappointed and he was, he was angry. Jesus, he comes to Cleopas and Cleopas sums it up. He's like, we thought he was the one. We thought, past tense, that he was the one that was gonna redeem you. We're disappointed, we're broken. And it says that Jesus had to come in and open up the scriptures and show Cleopas that it was all part of the plan. Where did he go? What, what did Jesus read? Well, we don't, we don't know for sure. Um, I can guess some passages. I'm almost 100% confident he went to this passage. And this is the prophet Isaiah, written 700 years before Jesus showed up. Isaiah writes, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, he did not open his mouth." The disciples saw the cross as the epitome of defeat. Jesus is, and this is the greatest great reverse of all, transforming it into the place of ultimate victory. And he goes to these passages and so much more. And I think he talks about this idea of atonement. That word means to repair something that was broken. And what sin did in the garden is it broke our relationship with God. There was a distance. It broke our relationship with one another. There was a distance. It broke our relationship with God's good earth. There was a distance. And the righteous icon, Jesus the King, was coming back to bring atonement or to repair the breach. Think of, the, what that, think of that word in English, at one meant. He's bringing it together. And I think Jesus opened up the scriptures, Isaiah and so many more. I think he walked them through the stories they knew He's like, think, in the garden, what did God do? He killed an animal. He made clothes for them, and he promised me. Think of Abraham and Isaac. 
right at the thing. You think he's going to kill his son, and then a lamb appears as a sacrifice. Think of the first Passover, where the angel of death passes over the doors of the ones that are covered in the blood of the sacrificial lamb. Think of thousands of years of atonement sacrifices that you offer morning and night in the temple. And then what do the gospels say about Jesus when he comes on the scene? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the This is why Jesus said, you gotta see the Messiah had to suffer and die. There was no other way. That's the only way the breach could be brought back together for me as God in the flesh to take care of it. I like to think of it uh, like this. There is no Easter Sunday without a Good Friday. There is no just king. It has to be a risen king. And in the greatest reversal of all, Luke tells us Jesus transforms death into a doorway for life for all who would look to him for life. Jesus himself said, unless a grain of wheat falls in the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Who do you say he is? I can, I'm confident in this statement. This is the way I would say it. Jesus is more than you think he is. I guarantee this statement for every single person in here. Is even if you think everything is true about Jesus, he's more than that. Jesus is more than you think he is. I guarantee you. And when you see that, our hearts are protected from disappointment. Jesus will never disappoint us. He is more than you think he is. And hear this, especially for those of you who are kind of kicking the tires of faith. Jesus is not just some good teacher. He's not just some moral teacher. He's not just some historical figure who did some good things. That's not who he is. Jesus didn't come. Hear this Christian. He didn't come to clean you up. He didn't come to improve you. Jesus came to raise the dead, amen? Jesus didn't come to make America great again. He didn't come to make any nation great again. Jesus came to bring a kingdom that would supersede every kingdom and it would be a kingdom that never ends, amen? Jesus is more than we think he is. And I want you to ponder that. I want you to pray on it. I want you to sort through that. And when we see this, like Cleopas and his wife, our hearts burn. And our disappointment is transformed into delight. Finally, uh, there is no Easter Sunday without Good Friday, but Good Friday is not Good Friday without Easter Sunday. <laughs> it's just not. I had a professor in seminary, I don't, it was 20 plus years ago, I don't remember anything from seminary Harley, but I remember this statement. It was an 8 a.m. class, I was barely awake, acting like I was taking notes. And he cleared his throat, and Dr. Burns, and he said, if Easter means anything, it means everything. I was like, whoa, whoa. It's never left me. I want you to think about that this Easter. If Easter means anything, it means everything. This is the way Paul said it in a letter to the church at Corinth around AD 55. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile for you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Hardly any historian I know, I don't really know any respectable historian that doesn't agree that Jesus of Nazareth lived and died around AD 30 to 33 on a cross and was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. It's undisputed. If Jesus stayed in that tomb, if Jesus' body was stolen or some, something that we don't think happened, it would have been crazy if that happened, and Jesus died that day and stayed dead, this is all a joke. You see that? This is just a colossal waste of time. And we're fools, those of us who follow Jesus. I'm the biggest fool. This is what I do for a career. This is the biggest fool up here. 
There's no middle ground here. That's why the, professor, the statement my professor made so deeply resonated with me. If Easter means anything, it means everything. But the tomb's empty, people. The tomb's empty. The scriptures, 700 years before, prophet after prophet said the Messiah is coming, he's gonna die, and he's gonna rise again. Jesus shows up, claims to the Messiah, promises he's gonna die and rise again. And the Jewish leaders knew, they heard him. So they enlisted Roman soldiers to help guard the tomb to make sure the body wasn't stolen. They wanted to cover all their bases. Guess what? The tomb was empty. And historians agree with that statement across the board, secular and Christian, that that tomb was empty and found empty by a group of women three days after his death. What are you going to do with it? There's not a lot of middle ground, right? If Jesus didn't die and something weird happened, then this is a joke and I'm a fool. And if you follow Jesus, you're a fool too with all due respect. But if it's empty, <laughs> it's empty, that's a game changer for everybody. My wife and I went to Jerusalem recently, as I mentioned, and one of the places I really wanted to go was Church of the Holy Sepulcher, which is the traditional site of the tomb of Jesus. And it's now this massive, ornate church. I think there'll be a picture that comes up. And, uh, but there's a lot of really good historical evidence that this was indeed the original site. So it's controlled by like six churches. It's just this really crazy geopolitical dynamic. But you, everybody wants to go there. So you wait in a line, and we waited in a long line. Then we get to the front. So picture this very ornate place. Everything's quiet. It's a holy place. And I'm with my wife, and our team's there. And we get up, and there's this very serious Eastern Orthodox priest that's just like guarding the door, you know, and letting people in. I was really nervous. So lo and behold, I get up. I'm first in line. Finally, I'm really excited, you know, like, Yeah. I said, I had to come to Jerusalem to tell our people the tomb was empty. I got to check for you guys. And uh, he just looks me up and down. I'm not kidding. And he's like, no. And I was like, no. And he's like, no shorts. And I was like. <laughs> but then, here it is. This is how dedicated I am to you. He didn't know who he was dealing with. And I was like, oh, watch this. And I pulled off my backpack. He didn't know I had my backpacking pants on, the zip on, zip off. <laughs> Right there, this Eastern Orthodox priest, as everybody's waiting, I'm like, wait, just one second. You know, I gotta... And my wife just goes in, she's like, I don't know who he is. I don't know. <laughs> and I got it done. It's the fastest I zipped on my pants ever. I don't think he had any idea what to do with me. He's like, okay, yeah. But I, that's how committed I am as your pastor. I checked, and the tomb is empty. <laughs> the tomb is empty. I verified it. Yes. Let's, uh, let's end by going back to the disciples. I think of all the, you know, we can wrestle all day with, with proofs of the resurrection and all that, and that's warranted and good. But I think the thing that, since I was a little kid, that's been most compelling to me is the radical life change in the disciples. One of my favorite spots we visited was Caiaphas's house. And Caiaphas was the high priest, and Caiaphas had the initial trial and then sent Jesus to Pilate, and then Pilate sent him back. And so they found Caiaphas' house, and they found uh, deep in the basement this cavernous spot that they're pretty certain was the place that Caiaphas would keep prisoners. He didn't keep a lot of prisoners, but when he would, he would keep them. And our whole team went down in there. It's this really, there's, there's a cross sketch, and there's this hole that they would lower prisoners through. It's profoundly moving. To, to, we sat down there as a team, and we read a psalm that Jesus might have prayed to the Father. He would not abandon him to the grave deeply emotive, to picture our, my Lord and my Savior for me being lowered down in this home and to think it was game time. Jesus knew what was coming and he chose it. So that was a powerful scene. And then we go out and they've, they've discovered the steps. There's first century steps. 
We know Jesus walked on these steps without a shadow of a doubt. Because if Jesus was going back and forth from Pilate's house, and maybe it was a 15-minute walk, back to Caiaphas' house, he would have traveled on these steps. Now, I've always pondered, like, the scene where Peter's denying, and now I think it's in anger and disappointment, but whatever it was, and Jesus sees him. Remember that scene where they lock eyes? I was like, how's that possible? There's so many people so far. Caiaphas' courtyard is right there. It's right beside the stairs. And it was this, like, realization, like, oh, my gosh. Jesus walked right by him and locked eyes with him. What would that moment have been like? Peter was done. He was out. There's no crucified king for me. That's not a thing. The power of the moment. And then let's fast forward. Follow with me. Not a month or two later, Peter and John are walking through the streets of Jerusalem proclaiming loudly and boisterously that Jesus is risen from the grave. And then they get arrested and flogged and put in a holding cell where? The same place. What does that? What brings that kind of change where 11 out of 12 of the original disciples gave their lives? Who dies for a lie? There's power in that. Now, you can hear all this today and be like, I don't know. I don't think you can say, I don't know, with all due respect. You can dismiss it, say it's wrong, but you can't avoid wrestling with it. If Easter means anything, it means everything. If it happened, if the tomb is empty and I'm confident it is, it changes absolutely everything. And that includes me, and that includes you. Our guide uh, for the trip was a, a, a wonderful uh, gentleman named Asher. He's a Jewish archaeologist, and he, uh, he's been over there. He was born in Jerusalem and very knowledgeable, and everyone knows Asher. And so what I, I'd never been on a tour. I'd never been to Jerusalem. And you have all these sites and lines and people from all over the world. Um, I learned that everyone knew Asher, and Asher could get us in anywhere. That's what I learned. And so we'd come up to this long line, and I hate waiting in line, so I'd be like, oh, boy. And Asher, I kind of felt bad about this, but not really. We would, we would circumvent the line, and Asher would go right up to the person in the front, whisper, say some things in Hebrew, laugh, smack him on the back, and they would open up the thing for us, and we'd just whoop. And I learned quickly in Israel, the line that got me anywhere and everywhere was, I'm with Asher. I'm with Asher. I'm with that guy. I'm with that guy. I'm with Asher. Are we with Jesus? I think that's a beautiful way to think about it. I think that's the way the gospel writers would present it. Do we identify with Jesus? Do we choose to stand before God one day and right now in a state of our own righteousness? With all due respect, there's a lot of people in here that are more righteous than me, undoubtedly, but good luck with that. Or do we choose to identify for the one, the God-man, who came and stood in the gap and brought what was broken back together and offers it to us as a free gift. Do we identify with him? If we do and we look to him for life, then Jesus' death and resurrection becomes our death and resurrection. And that right today, right here today, as we begin to follow King Jesus, we begin to live, truly live. And that living never stops, even when our earthly bodies decay. Who are you with? Who do you stand with today? Let me pray for us. God, I, I pray right now for uh, folks in this room that are wrestling with that question. Um, I think it's a, it, it, identity is a deeply personal question. I think all of us continually struggle with identity. And if we choose to identify with our, ourselves and go in our own way, as the scriptures say, I, I think that that's a road that leads to death. I, I do. But you intervened 
You, you broke through time and space. You put on flesh and you came here to do what only you could do, which is bear every single sin that's ever been committed and every will be committed and take all the penalties and the punishments and the power of sin and death and all the evil in the world and the evil one and you broke it forever and you said it is finished. And you offer to all of us, not some of us, not the church people, not the good people, you offer to all of us, even the worst of us, even me, you offer us life. If we just identify with you and just say, I'm with Jesus, I'm with Jesus. If that's something you've never done this morning, I wanna encourage you, just that's all you gotta do. I'm with Jesus, I wanna be with Jesus. One day I don't wanna stand by myself. I want Jesus to have my back. I want to stand with Jesus. And I'm confident if we make that choice and we begin to follow King Jesus today, we begin to step into what the scriptures say is the life that is truly life. So I want to invite you to make that decision right now, right in this moment. For those of us who follow Jesus, this isn't a game. If Easter means anything, it means everything. Are we serious? Are we just messing around here? Are we serious about following Jesus? Let's be serious. And for the glory of God and for the sake of the world, let's be the church he's called us to be. We love you, God. Thank you for the hope of the resurrection of the world that's sometimes so dark and depressing. Thank you because of Jesus, because of the empty tomb, there is always hope. We pray this in his matchless name and all God's people said, amen.